Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The South Carolina State House grounds is a landscape of monuments and memory. Since the Capitol moved there from Charleston to Columbia in the 1780s, South Carolinians have been erecting, moving, and contesting monuments on the Capitol's grounds, using them to debate the past as they really argue about their present. Monuments and statues, of course, are the subject of great debate right now, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And South Carolina's commemorations can help us to understand why. In 1858, for example, South Carolinians purchased a statue of George Washington for their Capitol grounds, as did other legislatures in the 19th century. But the reasons that Carolinians did so may surprise you. On today's show, former Washington Library Research Fellow Dr. Lydia Brandt joins me to discuss her new book, The South Carolina State House Grounds, a Guidebook, published by the University of South Carolina Press in 2021. Now, Brandt, who is a professor there at the university, is an expert on how American buildings and landscapes shape ideas about the past. Her book takes the public on a tour of the Carolina Capitol to show how metal, earth, and stone tell stories about the past and attempts to rewrite it. Brandt is also the host of Historically Complex, a podcast that guides listeners on a walking tour of the grounds. Check out the show notes for a link to that project and stay tuned after today's conversation for an exclusive sneak peek at one of Brandt's historically complex episodes. Now, before we get started, please do us a favor and rate conversations on your favorite podcast app. We'd really appreciate it. And with that, let's contest monuments in memory in South Carolina with Dr. Lydia Brandt. Probably a great place to start then, but talking about the development of the South Carolina Capitol grounds, you just alluded to the fact that a lot of the monuments that people can see now have moved or been added to over time. What's the history of the Capitol? It started in Charleston. Now it's in Columbia, where it's soon to be July and hotter than hell. Uh, <laughs> Literally. Us, yeah. yeah. <laughs> give us a little bit of a... The devil sweat. <laughs> I feel I always feel bad for the poor animals at the zoo there, but uh, it's a beautiful zoo. But yeah, I, I also pity them. Yeah, yeah. So, what's the history of the state capitol grounds there at Columbia after they moved from Charleston? And I, I gather the late 18th century somewhere in there. Yes. Yeah, so, when South Carolina became a state, and they were starting to talk about where do we put our capital, and so much of the social, political, economic capital with an A was focused in the low country, that it was very important to folks throughout the state to have power in a centralized place. And so they chose this literal center of the state, which is Columbia, and created an entirely new capital city. So they laid out a really ambitious plan that is, if you've ever been to Columbia, we have really, really wide streets. And that is very much a late 18th century ambition on par with kind of Washington, D.C. being planned at around the same time uh, and thinking about classical planning on a really broad scale. And so they moved the capital to Columbia in 1786. And the first state house that they build there is a wooden building that is pretty modest. The point was to spend as little money as possible on a state building. That is true throughout the history of the state house grounds. The financial investment is always is always disproportionate <laughs> to the emotional and kind of political investment in the meaning of the place. The same politicians will recognize the importance of this, the state house grounds and then not give any money to support it. So they build a capital, and it's immediately a problem because it's made of wood, which you don't want <laughs> for a building that you're going to keep the state's records in. Uh, and there's many discussions over the first half of the 19th century about what to do about it. And so finally, in the uh, middle of the 19th century, especially after the death of John C. Calhoun, who's really the most, who is the most important politician from South Carolina in the 19th century on a, on a national stage, they get it together to start building a building. And that's really the heart of the state capital that's there today. Although there's many different kind of iterations where they start building it, but they don't give enough money. And so it kind of falls apart. And then they figure out that the foundations are unstable. And so they have to start again. So it's, it's a total mess. But we we do get a cornerstone laid in the 10 years before the Civil War with John C. Calhoun's famous speech defending slavery underneath of it. Uh, and then that building is what our, our state house is today. 
kind of ironic then, or maybe not ironic, but it actually kind of matches what Alexander Stevens, who becomes vice president of the Confederacy, says later that the, you know the cornerstone of Confederate society rests on slavery in, in the state capital of South Carolina. That literally does. Yes, it is. It is the speech that won the last speech that John C. Calhoun gave in the Senate before he died, in which he warns about a civil war. He he warns about Northern aggression over the issue of slavery. And so that's laid in the corners. Well, it's really laid twice. I don't know if this is you get into the weeds really fast um, with all of, the, all of these different versions of the building, but it's in the cornerstone twice. It was so important. They put it in two different cornerstones for the same building. And then um, less than 10 years later, the order of secession is signed just blocks away mm-hmm. at First Baptist Church in downtown Columbia. So not just the idea of slavery being central to the state house, but the idea of South Carolina's sovereignty uh, in the issue of slavery or over the issue of slavery from the federal government. That's really mm-hmm. the crux of it. It's not just we are dependent. It's not just politicians saying we are dependent upon slavery. We believe slavery is right, but it's we believe that the federal government has no right to tell us under the Constitution uh, whether or not slavery is is legal. You mentioned a moment ago that the cultural and symbolic meetings of capitals are often disproportionate to the financial investment that states and communities make in them. What makes these places such contested spots of historical memory? They're inherently political. There's there are stages for politics. There are stages both for political actions like the writing and ratification of laws, debate of laws to happen. Uh, that is where these those things happen. But they're also representations of collective power. And in a democracy, especially in the 20th century, as that power fluctuates between different political groups, as who has enfranchisement, who's, who's buying into that power changes, um, there's inherent instability in what a capital building means, um, not to mention the actual laws that are happening there. So its meaning is constantly in flux, which I think is in direct contrast to most people's assumption of these spaces as historic places that don't change. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into the ways in which they change here in just a second, including a lot of the monuments that are there. But I want to follow up on just that last point. What do you see as the difference between history and memory? So history is written is written, one, it's written by historians. It's an interpretation of the past based on research, presumably, or hopefully research that is at least attempting to be unbiased, to gather evidence and put together a narrative based on that evidence. So it's constructed, but it's constructed in a way that is presumably set apart from personal memories, personal biases, personal perspectives. And anyone who's a historian knows that it's impossible to do that, but that's always the goal, is to use the evidence uh, as as scientifically as possible to Mm -hmm. put together uh, a, a view of what happened in the past and people's motivations for what happened in the past. Memory and collective memory is something much more flexible that changes constantly based on what people want to remember or want to forget about the past based on where they are in the current moment. It's a way of selecting, and sometimes we do this subconsciously, things uh, about the past to remember or linking them together to create a narrative that's much less concerned with evidence, that's much less concerned with what might actually have happened, and much more interested in the feelings or the role that those past events have to play in contemporary people's minds. As a historian, then, who studies architecture and, and art, what fascinates you about South Carolina Capitol grounds in Columbia? That's a good question. <laughs> it, should, it shouldn't be such a hard question to answer. That's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've always been interested generally in the ways in which Americans use buildings to communicate, to communicate their ideals, their values, uh, and most 
importantly to me, most interestingly to me, their feelings about the past. And I'm using feelings there. I'm not saying their history. I'm saying their feelings about the past, their memories about the past. And um, the State House grounds is a is a real repository for that. It's also kind of a mess. And I mean that it, most state house grounds are a mess. Um, they're done piecemeal. They're done over decades or they're done over centuries. And the more closely you look at them, the messier they get. The history of the South Carolina state house grounds became more interesting to me than the actual physical place when I started to turn over mm-hmm. just how messy it was. It's also interesting to me because it continues to be such a relevant space. People continue to protest there. Obviously, people continue to pass laws there. And so the meaning that we assume we might assume to be about the past is actually very much rooted in the present. It has real contemporary importance and people are constantly reacting to it and people see it in really different ways. I mean, you can, you see people posing for Christmas card pictures and wedding pictures and running up and down the steps for exercise. But then the next day people are, are protesting the building as a symbol of oppression. And so it's interesting to me that, that people, and sometimes the same people can hold both of those interpretations in their hands at the same time. And when you say it's a mess, what's an example of that? It was never a place that could hold a master plan for very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were attempts to see it as a comprehensive landscape in which all the pieces were talking to each other that had, and from a design perspective, had symmetry, had balance, but then people kept adding stuff to it. It's like the National Mall. It becomes a space where people people want to be represented. Mm -hmm. And when you have a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of people that feel that they have a right to be represented in this space, it becomes messy really fast. And so even though there were um, attempts, especially in the late 1960s and early 1970s, to give a comprehensive feeling to the system of paths and the location of monuments and the direction in which monuments face, they're still, they still feel very happy hazard and looking at the history of the space, how the monuments were placed, how the monuments have moved uh, has been really interesting because that that mess is part of the history. It's always been messy. It's always been a place in flux. So you've written a new book that takes people on a walking tour of the Capitol grounds. And you know, I had some conversations about that a few months ago, or I guess it was last year when you were in residence at the Washington Library as a research fellow. What what does time mean anymore? I can't quite <laughs> figure that out in, in this environment. It was but a different lifetime. It was it was the before times, as if we've been taken <laughs> to calling it. Now we're in the middle times, and soon there'll be an after times, but we'll get there. Um, but you and I had talked about this project, and and you had mentioned your reluctance to take it on. And actually, you you say that again in the introduction, and, and uh, as a way of thinking about that, Can you tell us a little bit about the book itself? And then what were some of those tough questions that people were asking you, as you say, in that introduction that convinced you to finally take on this project? So I'm going to start at the end of that series of questions. Some of the questions that people asked um, that helped me not only decide to write the book, but decide to write it as a guidebook, which I've never written a guidebook before. And I use guidebooks a lot, but I'd never written one before. The most basic questions people would ask me that convinced me to write a guidebook specifically as opposed to a monograph narrative, where they would ask me questions, when was this monument built? Who designed it? Who paid for it? And you'd think that those would be really easy questions to answer. And I started looking up information, as any good historian does, on Wikipedia and found... (laughs) Secret of the trade. Yes, absolutely. You're you're getting it here, folks. And I realized that the information was either obviously wrong or just not there. And so I started digging into... I started with newspapers, which was really the crux of the, the research for a lot of these monuments, because so many of these projects were so carefully tracked in the newspapers. And so I started putting together pieces of stories just to answer answer those basic questions for individual monuments. And in the process of doing that, I noticed patterns that I thought were really interesting. And two of the things that I noticed are really at the heart of the book and my interest, my sustained interest 
in the book. And that's one, that most of the monuments have moved. Mm-hmm. And that two, a lot of the monuments were related in ways that I hadn't thought about and that I wouldn't have thought about had I not done the research about how they, how and why they were constructed. So for example, a lot of the monuments used to be tied together on axes that the people on, on visual axes, they were in line with one another in ways that the people who had built them intended in mm-hmm. order to tie together different ideas, values, to make connections amongst different people or events in the past. And those sight lines and therefore those connections of meaning have been destroyed or altered when the monuments were later moved. And sometimes the monuments were moved for kind of nonsense reasons, like people kept hitting it with cars. <laughs> there was one monument that kind of sat out in the middle of the street and people kept hitting it with cars. So you're like, oh, we got to move it. But when you move it, it changes the meaning of not mm-hmm. only that monument that you're moving, but the monument that it was originally facing or on access with. So that was really interesting. And in trying to answer those really basic questions, I discovered that, that things were much more connected than I had assumed. So those questions helped me decide to write a guidebook specifically, as opposed to a comprehensive narrative, because I wanted to have a place where all of those basic questions could be answered. Who built this? Why? What did they say when it was unveiled? Where was it originally? If it was moved, where did it go and when? So the guidebook was a way for me to lay that all out in a systematic and authoritative way. Mm -hmm. The questions that were harder for me to answer and that I'm still wrestling with and that I'm not sure that a guidebook really can answer, so I have to think about kind of what the next stage for this research is, were the questions that people asked me, like, why aren't I represented on the state house grounds? Mm-hmm. Or what, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, when I would present the research that I was doing to tour groups, which I've given many, 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 many tours over the years um, at different stages of my knowledge and my research with this place, when I think of the, some of the stuff I would say on my first tours, I shudder just because I didn't know anything, yeah. um, but I knew more than anybody else did with the thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but some of those questions are really difficult to answer, and I don't have answers for people. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I really try hard not to answer the question that I think is really on a lot of people's mind right now, which is what, what do we do with these monuments now? Right. So you've told us how these monuments represent racist. You've told us how these monuments celebrate white supremacy were used as tools to perpetuate uh, white supremacy in a, in a systemic way. Uh, what do I do with that? And that's where I, I can say, look, I, I am a historian. I am laying out this history to inform those conversations. And I think as a public space, people have a duty and a right to use information like is in the guidebook in order to make those decisions. But I'm not going to be the one to tell them that. What kind of stories then are being told across that landscape when the people who erected those monuments originally conceived, as you said, some kind of vision that was telling a story about a particular moment or about how they understood their own place in South Carolina and probably in the United States? The most pervasive narrative on the state house grounds is white supremacy. It starts as an argument for white South Carolina politicians' sovereignty and South Carolina's sovereignty from the federal government over the issue of slavery. So the earliest art that was commissioned or purchased for the building were intended to make a statement not only about slavery's centrality to South Carolina society, but also to make an argument for its constitutionality. Mm -hmm. And so that's really at the heart of the stories that are told throughout the Statehouse grounds, all the way up through the monuments to the segregationist politicians of the 1950s and 60s that are erected on the grounds as late as the 1990s. It's about white South Carolina politicians pushing back against the federal government over the issue of race, whether we're talking about the enslavement of African-Americans or their oppression through Jim Crow segregation. 
Unsurprisingly, then, these monuments are highly contested things. We're talking about statues and monuments in our own time. People have been talking about them since they've gone up anywhere you look, obviously. But, you know, in recent months, they've become uh, a politically hot topic. They've become an argument over racial justice and injustice. That gets us back again to that question of, of history and memory. How is it that these monuments are shaping a particular narrative of the past that are difficult to untangle from historical reality? The monuments are very visible. You have to look for history, right? You have to go to the library and check out a book. You have to go to a museum and read exhibit text and look at objects. Monuments are very visible and they're in a position of power. They're in front of buildings that usually, whether you're talking about a courthouse square or you're talking about a place like the South Carolina State House grounds, they're in front of buildings that where decisions continue to be made about people's lives and about how society organizes itself. So I think it's easy to look at them and assume that they are telling history in the same way that a museum would because they are so visible. But because they're erected by people who are prioritizing their impressions of the past and the way in which the past is most convenient for their contemporary political or social positions, they are not representing history, even though so many people assume them to be. And so what I argue in the book and what is very much fundamental to the perspective of the guidebook is that these monuments tell us so much more about their own histories and the history of memory, the history of how people who have been in power in the state of South Carolina want to remember South Carolina's history. That's what we should be talking about. If you want to talk about history, if you want to talk about someone like Wade Hampton, the first post-reconstruction governor of the state of South Carolina who has a big equestrian monument on the grounds. If you want to talk about him as a historical figure, go read a biography. There's shelves and shelves and shelves. If you want to talk about how people have remembered him through the early 20th century, go look at the monument and read my guidebook that talks about what people said as they were raising money for the monument, as they were designing it, as they were erecting it, and then as they were moving it uh, in the 1960s. And that will tell you much less about Wade Hampton than about the people who wanted to mm -hmm. remember him. And that tells us a lot about our history, but it's, a, it's not the history that people assume. It's the history of memory. As you said earlier, you decided that you weren't going to write what we would in the business call a monograph, you know, a big right. scholarly book that is going to make complicated arguments about the past and may not be as accessible as some of us would like to the broader public who could benefit from some of this. So as you're then thinking about writing a guidebook, what are some of the choices you found yourself wrestling with or making so that you could communicate these complex ideas to a wider audience so that they could walk on the grounds? and have this book at hand and have a better understanding of how these various historical and commemoration processes are playing out. The first thing I had to do was let go and accept the fact that some people will just use this as a guidebook. They'll go straight to the entry for the monument they're interested in and they won't read the whole thing. So I had to really embrace that this would not be something that people, most people, I mean, I hope somebody reads it from start to finish. At least my mother will. Maybe. Actually, that's not true. Um, my husband will. <laughs> I will. It's fun. Yeah. The, the peer reviewers did. Um, yeah. <laughs> my editor did. Uh, but I had to, I had to let go of, uh, of that, which is something I think that historians who are used to making, as you say, these complicated layered historical arguments is something that we depend on and that's what we're trained to do. And so I had to let go of that and I had to figure out how to tell not just a story of an individual monument in say 500, 600 words, but also to whet people's appetites enough about the other monuments or buildings or whatever that that monument is connected to so that they would go to the next entry or that they would go back to a previous entry. And so some of the strategies that I used was not just in the, in the narrative of talking about individual monuments, but also in the images that I chose. I chose a lot of images, historic images that show the relationships between monuments. 
I also spent a tremendous amount of time. This was much harder than I thought it would be. Maps that showed the state house grounds over time that showed where oh. the paths were, that showed where monuments had been over time. So there's four maps at the, at the back of the book that show these relationships that I'm talking about in the individual entries and will hopefully push people to go and read uh, multiple entries to think about how these things are connected physically and then hopefully go the next step to think more deeply about the ideas that are connecting these monuments. It was hard not to repeat myself a lot in the book because mm -hmm. of that. But I really tried to think about images and how, how images could work that way. I also had multiple entries in the book that were explicitly about the landscape and about the development of the landscape, the systems of paths uh, and orientation that and the different master plan attempts at master plans that people had, hoping that people would read those and then think more deeply about not just the individual monuments, but the role that those monuments played in the large, the creation of this larger, uh, this larger place and therefore the larger meaning. One of the monuments you write about in your book is a George Washington monument that's on the Capitol grounds there. Tell us about the history of that particular monument. So we have a copy of the Houdon, the Jonathan Houdon statue of George Washington that was commissioned in the 18th century by Thomas Jefferson for the Virginia State Capitol. And it's long been thought to be the best representation of George Washington. And of course, it's the root of the most important relic or object owned by Mount Vernon other than the house. And that's that's the Houdon bust mm -hmm. um, that is in the Museum and Education Center today. But that statue was commissioned in the 18th century, and it was copied in the 19th century by a Richmond artist in bronze uh, at the permission of the Virginia state government. And he thought this guy Hibbard, he was a real piece of work. He thought that he was going to make a fortune off of selling these bronzes, these bronze copies of this incredibly famous statue of George Washington. Well, he ends up only making a handful of them, and then the Civil War happens, and he blows himself up in his own foundry. It's very sad, um, and he dies in great debt. <laughs> it's really interesting. These are the stories that I found. They're really interesting. This um, <laughs> grand ambition, so, and then he blows himself up. <laughs> I know. He blew up. I actually blew him. I think he blew his hand or his leg off, and then he suffered for a couple of days, and then he died. But anyway. It was he, turned um, dark pretty quickly. Yeah, sorry. Well, yeah, it gets real dark. This is a dark book. Uh, so he... <laughs> So he shows, he, he thinks he's going to be able to sell these because everybody loves George Washington in the first, I mean, everybody loves George Washington in the first half of the 19th century. And so he puts a cast that he uses in the creation of these bronze copies in the U.S. Capitol uh, as a way to sell it to politicians uh, that are coming, of course, from their states all over the nation. And the South Carolinians see it and say, oh, this would be super for our new state house that's going up in Columbia. And in 1858, they purchased one of these bronze copies of the Houdon uh, statue of Washington and, and take, it, uh, take it down to South Carolina to put in front of the Capitol that's then under construction. In the initial statue that Jefferson and, and the state of Virginia commissioned, the argument made by that statue is about Washington's role in democratic leadership and what democratic leadership at the executive level uh, should look like, right? It's about Washington as someone who doesn't want power as someone who gives power back to the people, as someone who is is not interested in power as a as a personal uh, as a personal pursuit of his own ambitions. And that's the heart of that statue in its 18th century sense, that comparison to Cincinnatus, the Roman general who won the battle and then walked away from power when offered the opportunity to be emperor. But that's not what the South Carolinians were interested in when they purchased the bronze in 1858. They were interested in the figure of Washington as a way to promote their, their assertions of sovereignty mm -hmm. um, over the issue of slavery. They looked at George Washington, a plantation owner, a Southerner, uh, and an image of him as a uh, as a general of a very ragtag, am I allowed to say that on the Washington, <laughs> Washington <laughs> Library podcast, uh, a very ragtag revolutionary <laughs> army that won against the most powerful army 
in the most powerful empire in the world. And so they're purchasing this statue as a statement of their own ability uh, as South Carolinians to push back against the power of the American federal government, the United States federal government, and specifically their ability to push back against and their right to push back against the federal government over the issue of slavery. So in the statue, you have the original meaning um, that Houdon and Jefferson and Washington intended. But you also have this very contemporary layer of memory, right? Looking back at a historical figure like Washington, who by the time they purchased the statue has been dead for more than half a century. And they're using him, a historical figure, in a particular way to project a certain memory of the revolution. And that is very much in service of their contemporary political argument. What happens to the monument after it's installed? You referenced earlier that some monuments are moved, some are altered in some way. Is there any changes made to this one over the course of its life uh, through the present day that changes the way we think about it or the way that we see it? So the statue of George Washington is in a crate in the basement of the state house and on the ground floor of the state house when uh, Sherman and the Union Army invade Columbia in February 1865. And basically all hell breaks loose. And there's lots of discussion over who started the fire that burned uh, burned Columbia. But we'll just say on this podcast that there was a massive fire. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so in the process of that, the original state house, the wooden state house, which was still being used because contemporary state house was still under construction, was burned. And the uh, the state house that was then under construction, which didn't actually even have a roof, was damaged. And in the process of that, um, the Washington statue, which was still, uh, we think, in a crate, was damaged. And the cane specifically was broken. The cane was attempted to be repaired um, at least once as the statue was erected uh, outside the state house and then moved right on axis in the 1910s, right in front of the state house. Uh, but it, it just always kind of fell apart. <laughs> and so it was left broken. Uh, and then in the 1930s, a plaque was added that definitively blamed the Yankees definitively blamed Sherman um, and the Union troops for damaging the statue. And so that plaque is really interesting to me because it's a perfect example of another layer of memory being added on top of this monument. So you have the original statue, which is about commemorating Washington during his lifetime as a leader. You have the 1858 purchase of the statue, remembering Washington as a slaveholder in service of contemporary arguments leading up to the Civil War and South Carolina's secession about slavery. And then you have this layer of memory in the 1930s that's very much part of the lost cause victimization of South Carolina uh, and thinking about South Carolina as, oh, we were just we were just standing up for our rights. And then Sherman shows up and burns it. And look, those Yankees were so heathenous. They even they were so barbarous. They even beat up George Washington's statue. That's 75 years after the Civil War concludes. And it's part of a larger larger movement on the state house grounds in the 1930s to mark scars and they use the term honorable scars to mark scars that the state house grounds endured during the burning of columbia by by the union troops so it's part of that lost cause victimization so you have stars that are erected on the side of the building to mark uh, the damage that was never repaired, like the like the cane caused during the fire. And then you have one of my favorite monuments on the state house grounds, which is a tombstone for the original state house uh, that was burned in February. It is literally a tombstone um, that was burned in 1865. So that just adds another layer of uh, of memory, and also precludes, I think, precludes the cane ever being fixed that now the monument is permanently damaged and that that is part mm -hmm. of its meaning, uh, that, that, that destruction and that vandalism is part of its meaning. But one of the things I found really interesting in figuring out the cane, because people always ask about the cane, because it's weird that it's broken. Yeah. Yeah, it looks um, weird. 
it looks weird. And, and people always ask about it. And one of the things, stories that I found that was really interesting in the late 19th century, after the end of Reconstruction, and uh, during this period when a narrative is formed by white people who have, they saw themselves as redeeming power from the biracial state government elected, the Republican-led government let, uh, that was elected during Reconstruction, they start telling stories about the cane they conveniently forget that it was probably broken uh, during the siege in Columbia in 1865. And instead, they tell stories about African-American legislators messing around, getting in fights in the state house during Reconstruction and falling into the George Washington statue. And that that's the explanation for why the cane broke. So then the monument has another layer that has since been forgotten that I found buried in newspaper accounts and other discussions of the statue where it becomes the monument's broken cane becomes evidence of black men's inability and unfitness to be leaders uh that these people were elected to be politicians in the state house and how ridiculous is that when they are getting in skirmishes and falling into the statue of george washington that's evidence physical evidence of their unfitness for power and so that's forgotten when the lost cause narrative takes over with the plaque in in 18 in 1936 there's a huge discussion in the late uh, 19th century because the building isn't completed until the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge discussion and the state house is really used by the redeemers, the white redeemers following reconstruction. The state house is used as a piece of physical evidence of the Republicans unfitness for power during reconstruction. So they hold basically a year's worth of hearings and write this crazy long report that you can read on Google Books. It's like a thousand pages uh, about the furnishings that the Republicans bought, about the carpets that they bought, about the ways in which they tried to gussy up this basically like half finished building to use it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so the building becomes a becomes a piece of evidence in their argument for why Black people should never have power in state government again. Am I right in thinking that there are similar scenes in, was it Birth of the Nation? The South Carolina State House is the inspiration for those scenes in Birth of a Nation, uh, where where Black legislators have their bare feet up on desks and are stereotyped as very foolish. That is supposed to take place in the South Carolina State uh, House. Yeah, I would say that, that when you were discussing those images earlier, that it was immediately what came to my mind. And I was like, I'm yeah. sure there's got to be a connection. Yes. And and South Carolina was the only uh, and still remains the only state government to ever have a black majority in its general assembly. And so in the early 20th century, especially South Carolina's legislature was vilified uh, by the unreconstructed kind of corner of the South or majority, I guess, of the South um, <laughs> as as here. Here's what happens when mm-hmm. black people get power. And the monuments are used, uh, the monuments that are largely constructed in the decades, the real 40 years after the end of Reconstruction, are used both to celebrate those redeemers that took back, um, they, they saw themselves as taking back the state government from uh, Black power, but also as a warning mm. uh, against Black power ever happening again, uh, which makes the especially the the protests that really uh, become very public and very strong in the 1960s is the against integration on the state house grounds that much more powerful mm-hmm. and salient because that landscape was constructed to make an argument uh, about what the dangers of black power. Now, in addition to the book, you've also created another way for people to experience and tour the state house grounds. And you've done that through a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that project. As I was writing the book, I was working with Historic Columbia, which is a preservation and uh, public history organization in Columbia that owns house museums, but also does a lot of preservation advocacy and programming and education. And I was working with them to develop a series of tours and what they saw as structured conversations around the monuments. Their goal is to educate South Carolinians and specifically Colombians about the history of the State House grounds in order to inform contemporary conversations about what should happen with the monuments. So I gave a series of tours with them that were really helpful to me in figuring out what people were going to want from the guidebook, need from the guidebook, how they were going to use the guidebook. 
but I also developed with them a series of tools, online tools, including an online tour that gives some of the basic history of each of the monuments. So that got us thinking about what other kinds of programming that we could do that would get out some of the information and research that I had done and answer some of people's questions, assuming that not everybody is going to buy a guidebook or read a guidebook. So we applied for a grant through South Carolina Humanities to fund uh, me to produce a podcast that would give people a sense of some of the research that I had done and some of the narrative that I tell on my in-person tours of the history of this place. And so that's how the podcast came about. So that's great. So what does a typical episode look like? And I should uh, point out to listeners that they'll have the opportunity to hear your episode about the Washington Monument play directly after our conversation here. So stay tuned for that. So there's four episodes and they're all pretty short. And the first explains or goes into the perspective that I have on the state house grounds that this is a place of memory and not history. And it presents that that idea that the monuments and the buildings tell us more about the people that built them than they do about the events and uh, and historic figures that they purport to be about. The other three episodes focus on a series of monuments that are all really close to each other in front of the state house and that in some ways communicate with each other. And each episode describes those monuments, gives people a sense of what they look like uh, if they're not actually in front of the monument or if they are in front of the monument and they're listening on site, it gives them an opportunity to walk around the monument and to notice things that they might not have noticed otherwise. But it also gives a history of how the monument was created and some of the things that people thought and said and what motivated them uh, when they erected the monument. That sounds great. And what are some of the other ways you imagine that people might use this? Do you see this as uh, folks as using this in the classroom? So the podcast presents a kind of methodology for looking at monuments. It suggests that monuments are like onions that have layers and the outside layer, what the monument looks like, can sometimes tell you basically nothing about the core of the monument, which is what the monument means. And most importantly to me, what the monument was intended to mean by the people who put it there. And so I hope that the podcast encourages teachers, students, citizens to think about the layers of monuments that they're not seeing. And Historic Columbia and I are hoping that people will use the podcast in tandem with the online tour that has a little bit of history for each of the monuments, has historic photographs, and also has a bibliography to start to do some research on their own about the history of these monuments. And then when my guidebook comes out in May, you have another tool that has really detailed footnotes Um, that will allow you to look at specific pieces of historical evidence that I use to construct these histories of the individual monuments. But all of this, the guidebook, the podcast, the online tour, and even the in-person tours that I gave before the pandemic with Historic Columbia are intended to inform people uh, of the history of these monuments so that they can start to make decisions for themselves on how or if they want these monuments to continue to represent them. Because as monuments in public spaces, They do represent all South Carolinians, whether we want them to or not, uh, or whether they look like us or not, or whether they look like us, and I'm using us really broadly, whether they look like human beings living in South Carolina in the 21st century or not. And so all uh, all of these tools that I've created, and most of which I've created with Historic Columbia, are intended to help inform those conversations. Well, you've given the public a few ways to peel back those layers, Lydia, and thanks very much for coming on the podcast and sharing that with us and looking forward to seeing what you do next in this space. Thank you, Jim. This was a lot of fun. It's always it's always fun to talk with you and to talk with the Washington Library. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
I'm Dr. Lydia Brandt, and this is our first stop on Historically Complex, a tour of the South Carolina Statehouse grounds. Brought to you by Historic Columbia with a grant from South Carolina Humanities. You should be standing on the north side of the South Carolina Statehouse, looking at the building with the statue of George Washington in front of it. If you're not at the Statehouse grounds in Columbia right now, that's fine. Go to historiccolumbia.org slash monuments to follow along with an interactive map, to see historic photographs, or to get more information. Also keep an eye out for my guidebook to the grounds, which will be released by the University of South Carolina Press in May 2021. The building you're seeing in front of you is a grand classical revival building meaning that it has lots of references to ancient Greece and Rome, but they're kind of all mixed up in a way that is pretty American. It's made of granite that was quarried from just up the river here in Colombia. It has a really high copper dome that, if you go inside, lights an immense lobby that sits at the center of this cruciform or cross-shaped building. Two matching porticos or classical temple fronts sit on the north and south sides of the building, lining up with Main Street. If you look around, you'll notice that this building actually sits in the middle of Main Street, making the building feel even more important. The whole city seems to revolve around it. Walk up to the statue of George Washington. This is a bronze sculpture purchased in 1858 by the state legislature when this building was still just an idea. The building in front of you is the second Capitol building here in Columbia. The first was made of wood and, as capitals go, pretty modest. We'll talk more about what happened to that building later. By the middle of the 19th century, South Carolina politicians wanted a grand building that made a statement about how important South Carolina was to the maturing nation. They hired an architect, John Rudolph Nearncy, who designed this building that you see in front of you. Then they started thinking about how they wanted to decorate the building. And this statue of George Washington was their first decision. Now that we know a little bit about the background of this sculpture, let's start peeling back the layers, like an onion. We'll start by looking closely at the sculpture itself, describing what we see. Then we'll begin to peel back the layers of all the decisions that had to have been made to get the statue to look this way and to be here in this place. Who made these decisions and why? Finally, we'll get to the core of what this statue meant to the people who paid for it. First, let's look closely at the sculpture. It's made of bronze, larger than life-size, on a pretty short base. This is a portrait of someone you probably know pretty well, George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army that won the Revolutionary War for the Americans and the first president of the United States. Washington's wearing his military uniform. His cloak is bunched up and laid on top of a bundle of rods, known as a fasces, an ancient Roman symbol for the unity of government. His right hand rests on his walking cane, which you can see is broken at the bottom. If you walk around the back of the statue, you see that there's a plow at his feet. Now that we've looked closely at the sculpture, let's peel the next layer the intention behind the choices to depict George Washington as we see him here in bronze. This sculpture is actually a copy of another sculpture originally carved in marble by a French artist named Jean-Anton Houdon. Thomas Jefferson commissioned a sculpture of George Washington from his French friend for the Virginia State Capitol building in the 1780s. Jefferson wanted a sculpture that would not only tell people what George Washington looked like, but also present him as a good example of what an American leader should do, feel, say, and be. There was lots of discussion about what George Washington should be wearing. Some people said he should be wearing a toga to represent the timelessness of the American ideals of democracy. But ultimately, Washington was depicted in contemporary clothing so that he'd be recognizable to people. Even though Washington isn't standing here in a toga, he is representing the ancient ideals of a democratic leader, someone who is disinterested in power because the power belongs to the people. During his lifetime, Washington was praised as such a great leader because he stepped down from power, and that's exactly what this sculpture shows him doing. 
The Revolutionary War is over. He's taken off his cloak, and he's hung his sword on the side of this bundle of rods, that ancient Roman symbol of the unity of government. Count the rods. There are 13 rods, representing the 13 original colonies, or states. He's not holding his sword in his hand. He's hung his sword on that bundle of rods, signaling that he's giving his power back to the government. At the very moment when Washington was victorious, he walked away. He had just won a war with a pretty scraggly army over the British, the most powerful military in the West. This was a point when Washington had tremendous opportunity to take power even as a kind of king. But instead, he deferred to the new government and went back to his plantation in Virginia, Mount Vernon. And that's where that plow comes in. If the fasces, with the sword hanging on it, tells us what Washington's been doing and what he's giving up, then the plow tells us where he's going. Houdon's sculpture still stands in the Virginia State Capitol, and it's thought by many to be the most accurate portrait of George Washington. Okay, so if that was the intention behind the original sculpture, why did the state government in South Carolina want a copy of the statue in 1858? Statues of George Washington were very popular in the 1850s. Some of the most famous go up in this period, like the giant statue of George Washington on a horse in New York City's Union Square. Virginia also built another sculpture of George Washington in front of their state house in the 1850s. His home in Virginia was in the news constantly as a group of women, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, purchased the house from the family and opened it to the public as a museum. By purchasing a statue of George Washington, South Carolinians were jumping on that bandwagon and showing that as one of those 13 original colonies, one of those rods in the fasces that he hangs his sword on, they wanted to make a statement about their part in the founding of the nation. But there's also something else about George Washington that white South Carolina politicians wanted to connect themselves to. Washington wasn't just praised in the 1850s for being a great leader. He was also praised for being a slave owner. In the decade leading up to the Civil War, at a time when slavery was the issue in American politics and society. Many Americans who believed in enslaving other human beings pointed to Washington as an example of slavery's goodness, righteousness, and importance to the founding of the nation. By purchasing a copy of this very famous sculpture of George Washington, white South Carolinians were enshrining this version of Washington in bronze for their new statehouse. They were making a point about slavery's importance to the nation, as well as its importance to South Carolina's economy, politics, and society. And here's where we get the core of that onion, the layers of meaning. In its first iteration, in Virginia, the sculpture was about the importance of George Washington's example for American leadership. The copy in the 1850s is also about George Washington, but it's using him in a very different way. It's zeroing in on that plow at his feet. The fact that when he gave up power, he went back to his plantation, where he'd enslaved hundreds of Africans and African-Americans to run his business. In 1858, just a few years before the start of the Civil War, this sculpture was absolutely about slavery. And as the first sculpture for this new statehouse, this set the tone for the ideas that would be at the center of this grand new building. I'm Dr. Lydia Brandt, and this is Historically Complex, brought to you by Historic Columbia with a grant from South Carolina Humanities. Our next episode will be about the building you see in front of you, completed after the purchase of the statue of George Washington, as well as the sculptures that followed it that you see today on the front of the State House. See you then. This podcast was written by me, Lydia Brandt, Associate Professor of Art and Architectural History at the University of South Carolina. It was produced by Jake Irwin. The music was composed and performed by Jake Irwin. Thank you.